we can pray for some of these things that have been mentioned after, after I'm done speaking here. John 17. I had said last time that I thought it would be a good idea to read through this um, on your own during the week. I hope some of you have done that. And uh, I think we'll just read it all again this evening. John 17. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom he has given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do, you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have their, my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you have loved me. Father, 
I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Father, we pray again tonight that you would help us to understand and apply your word. We think of how incredible this prayer is and how far beyond our comprehension so much of what's contained here. Uh, how far these things are above us. We just pray for your help. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we stressed last time that this one of the things that comes out in this prayer is the importance of relationships. And we emphasize that um, relationships are part of the eternal order of things. That it's not something that we have invented or concocted here on earth and uh, something that uh, is foreign to the uh, nature of ultimate reality. It's part of ultimate reality because of the Trinity. The relationships of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And these relationships come out so clearly in this portion. Uh, the fact that they are eternal, as he says uh, in the latter part of verse 24. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. So there was love, there was communication there uh, between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit before time ever existed. We said that this prayer, as we're trying to analyze it anyway, you could analyze it in terms of relationships. And I split it up this way. Verses 1 through 5, the relationship of the Son and the Father. Again, looking at that last time, we'll go on with that a little bit this evening. Verses 6 through 19, the relationship of the Son and the Father to Christ's initial disciples, or what we normally call the apostles. And then verses 20 through 26, the relationship of the Son and the Father to all believers from then on. In other words, the relationship uh, to the church of the Father and the Son. So last time we began looking at this amazing prayer of Jesus. And you remember this was given at the time of the Last Supper, uh, this lengthy account starting uh, at uh, chapter 13 of what went on there in the upper room. And part of what went on one of the final things that took place was this prayer that Jesus prayed. He was praying, first of all, that he would be glorified, that Jesus would be glorified. Uh, and by that, I think he meant that he would be brought through uh, this coming uh, trial, scourging, crucifixion. 
but it included more than that. It included the resurrection, the ascension on into heaven, that he would be glorified, brought back to that position that he had with God prior to the incarnation, uh, given then his previous glory. And the reason for that was that he might glorify the Father. You see it there, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. He was asking that he would be glorified so that he could glorify God in a greater way than ever before. Bring me through this, Father, that I might bring new and greater glory to your name and your person. And uh, we said last time that that really part of that greater glory has to do with the fact that he was going to save a people that would glorify him forever. In other words, even though there was eternal glory there with, within the Trinity, now there is going to be a multitude of people glorifying God uh, for what Christ had done. Uh, he was praying to return to his previous glory and bringing an even greater glory to God because of what he had done here on earth. A greater praise of his holiness, a greater praise of his justice, a greater praise of his love and mercy, greater glory, because he has given eternal life to those that God had given him. This is the great plan of salvation. You see, when we talk about the plan of salvation, so often we're limiting it to something that happens here on earth. We might talk about uh, sharing the gospel with someone as being the plan of, you know, sharing the plan of salvation. But the plan of salvation began in eternity. God planned it out. And in fact, he says it this way. He said, even as you gave me authority over all flesh that to all whom you get, have given him, he may give eternal life. God the Father gave God the Son authority over all mankind, but he also gave him some specific people that to those people the Son might give eternal life. So what is this thing of eternal life? Well, he tells us, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's having a right knowledge of God the Father and His Son. And now, that's, of course, more than head knowledge. What we're talking about here, a knowledge of God, we're talking about um, fellowship with Him, uh, trusting Him, having a relationship with the Father through the Son. We said this is all about relationships. That relationship... Of, of people to God had been broken because of sin. Sin wrecks relationships, and it wrecked the greatest relationship there ever was, and that was between God and man. Uh, it wrecked that relationship. But Christ came to restore that. Christ died that that relationship would be reestablished and restored. He, he came to make a people fit to commune with God, to have this kind of relationship that was uh, designed from eternity. Fit to commune with God, 
and that is to last forever. In other words, they were to be a people who would love and fellowship and commune with God and glorify God forever. And this is God's purpose in sending his son. This is Christ's purpose in coming. He had a mission that was planned from eternity, and he came to carry out that mission. And he says, I've accomplished it. Um, I I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So that's pretty much where we left off last time. So I kind of want to pick up there at verse 4. While on earth the Son glorified the Father by doing the work that had been assigned to him in eternity. What was that work? Well, there's lots of aspects of it, but I just want to point out some that are mentioned in this prayer. First of all, teaching and living the truth that the Father had given him. His work was to teach and live the truth that the Father had given him. You see that in verse 8. For the words which I which you have given me, I have given to them. So he's saying, I've given them your words. That was part of the, you might say, the assignment, the mission. (coughs) Secondly, it was to show forth the true character of God. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Now we're going to talk about that in a little more length. When he talks about manifesting the name, he's talking about showing forth the character, the true character of God. You see that again in verse 26, I have made your name known to them. So showing forth the true character of God. Another aspect of this work that he was sent to do was to live in perfect holiness. To live as a man in perfect holiness which meant keeping God's law perfectly. This was part of the the work he talks about that he had accomplished. He'd lived every day of his life in a sinless, perfect way, in total holiness. I don't think we emphasize this aspect of Christ's work enough. Day by day, hour by hour, he lived in perfect holiness, a totally sinless life. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin, the book of Hebrews says. Tempted as we are. We can't go five minutes without sinning. In some way, I mean, a lot of it's in the thoughts, but it's still sin. But I'm saying, here was a man that said, I've finished the work that you've given me to do. And part of that work was to live a perfectly holy life. Uh, he was tempted like we are, yet without sin, without sin in thought, word, or, or deed. He did what the first Adam failed to do, and every son of Adam has failed to do since then, and that is to live in perfect holiness, to live in perfect conformity to the law of God. You see... One failure would have meant no salvation. Think of that. One evil thought, he would not have been sinless. He could not have been the the spotless Lamb of God. He says here uh, in verse... uh, 
19, For their sake I sanctify myself. He had to live holy. God sent him to live a holy, a perfect life, so that he could be the spotless Lamb of God. And for, for their sake, those that God had given to him, for their sake he sanctified himself, that they also, they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. And that, of course, is the great work the greatest work that he was sent to accomplish, the work of redemption. Now, here's a question that I think is interesting. In verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work which, I, which you have given me to do. He says, I've accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And yet, this is before the cross. Isn't that an amazing statement? He hasn't been crucified yet. The greatest work of all hasn't been done yet. But he says, um, I've glorified you on earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. How are we to understand this? Well, I think he says that he has finished that which he most surely knows he will finish. F.F. Bruce put it this way. He says, on the eve of the sacrifice of the cross, as he consecrates himself for it, he is so totally committed to it that he speaks of it as if already accomplished. This greatest work of all, the supreme act of obedience, which was planned in eternity, was only hours away. And it was so firmly set in his heart and mind that he could speak of it as accomplished. In fact, he's looking beyond that to the glory that awaits him uh, beyond the grave, beyond the cross, to the glory that he would have again with the Father. That's what he's praying about. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. the glory, the splendor, the majesty that he had with the Father before the world was. But you see, it's going to be an even greater glory, we said, partly because of what he's done in redemption, bringing many sons to glory that would be there to glorify the Son and the Father throughout eternity. But I want to bring out another aspect of this. It would be a greater glory that lay ahead because of what was accomplished here on earth. And I just, we're getting into an area here that is so hard to deal with. You know, I actually read that some commentators would not write a commentary on John 17 because it, they just said it's too far beyond human capabilities. But God has it recorded here for us. So I think it's right. I mean, he, he, he had the disciples there to hear this and then gave them the ability to remember and record what was written, what was prayed, so that we would have it. So I don't think it's wrong to comment on it. But the problem is, is that you just get into such um, 
I don't know, deep things that you just realize uh, it's almost uh, futile to try to deal with some of this. It's so far beyond where we are. And one of the areas is this whole thing of glory. What this eternal glory is like that he's talking about, that he wants to return to. It's beyond our understanding or our capability to speak of. Before the world was, the Trinity existed in timeless, glorious communion. And what are we going to, how can we explain that? How can we deal with it? Christ is praying about something here which is in a realm we've not experienced and we very little understand this glory that he had with the Father. His period of humiliation and self-imposed weakness, which began at the Incarnation, was now coming to an end. And he would again be clothed with the radiant glory, the splendor that he had with the Father. Now, I can't describe that glory. I don't know if anybody can. Of course they can't. There's no way it could be. But I did think of this maybe uh, way of just thinking about it. I think that one split second of exposure to that glory would kill every sinful creature that ever lived. Just, just like that. Because of the glory of what's there. The unapproachable light but it's, it's I mean that's just a, 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 a picture a, a way of trying to explain the glory unapproachable light but here's the amazing thing one split second would kill every sinful creature that ever lived but listen to what he prays think of this at the end of the prayer, Jesus prays this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. In other words, he's made a way so that we can actually see that glory and enter into it and partake of it. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, going clear down to verse 24, and I've got to get back on track here. Um, here he's praying about himself returning to that glory. And I want you to think about this. We said there's going to be a greater glory because of the fact that there's going to be a, a multitude of people that have been pulled out from destruction and brought to eternal life. It's going to be a greater glory because of that, but there's another sense that I think this is greater. He was returning to that glory in a new state of existence as the God-man, no longer just God, the God-man, the one, who, the one who it was said of, the Word became flesh. Think of that. The Word became flesh. 
Not only did he become flesh, he is now and forever in that condition. He's a a man. He did not leave his body behind when he rose from the grave. He returned to his previous glory with a body, a human body. A transformed, glorious body, but a body nonetheless. He was taking his humanity with him as a return to his pre-incarnate glory. I want to read the way one poet put this, Christopher Wordsworth. Thou hast raised our human nature on the clouds to thy right hand. There we sit in heavenly places. There with thee in glory stand. Jesus reigns, adored by angels. Man with God is on the throne. Look at that. Talking about this glory, this unapproachable glory. And yet, man with God is on the throne. Mighty Lord, in thine ascension, we by faith behold our own. He came to earth, you see, to share our humanity in order that throughout eternity we might share his eternal fellowship and glory as people made in the image of God. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the foundation before the world was. So he's speaking about him returning to that glory. But now I want to go into this next section where we're talking about his relationship, the Father, the Son and the Father's relationship to those initial disciples or the apostles. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words which I, the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. He says, I've accomplished the work that you sent me to do. And I want to go into a little more detail on two aspects of that work. We've already mentioned them, but first of all, God's name was manifested. This was one of the primary assignments, if you want to put it that way, that Christ had from the Father in coming to earth to manifest God's name. Uh, If... If you read down through this prayer, you'll see that the name is mentioned a number of times. Uh, Of course, right here, I have manifested your name to the men. But you see it uh, in verse 11. um, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one. And then it's in verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. 
And then verse 26, and I'm probably missing some here. I just kind of jotted these down real quickly. Verse 26, I have made your name known to them. So this thing of the name, what are we talking about? Well, I already mentioned it has to do with God's character, God's attributes. You know, it's kind of tempting to think that he was uh, maybe thinking of one particular name like Jehovah or uh, Father, for instance, because he calls God Father here a number of times. But I don't think he was thinking of one particular name. God's name embodies his character and his attributes. So to manifest God's name is to make his character known. This is what he did. He came and made God's character known. And that's what he means when he says, I have manifested your name to these men. I've made your character known to them. As often as Jesus made known the mind and will of his Father to his disciples, so often did he manifest God's name to them. As often as he lived in complete love and holiness before the disciples, he manifested manifested God's name to them. How often did he do that? Always. He always um, manifested or showed forth uh, complete love and holiness to his disciples and before his disciples. So what am I saying? I'm saying his whole life and teaching manifested God's name to his disciples. When he says, I manifested your name, he's saying, my whole life shows forth the character and attributes of God. A right knowledge of God the Father was essential to what Jesus imparted to his disciples. You remember, he said, this is necessary. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You might, just as a cross-reference on this, turn back to John chapter 1. Well, let me just read it to you. John 1, 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Nobody's seen God, but they've seen God on earth, God with us, Emmanuel. They've seen him, and therefore they've seen the Father. The the manifestation of what God is like, which is what I think Jesus is talking about here when he talks about manifesting the name. I think you could say it this way. The name stands for God himself. And the Son manifested God himself to the disciples. So he said, I've manifested thy name to these men. He who has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus said. The Son was the exact representation of his nature. Of the, fa- the Son was the exact representation of the Father's nature. So he manifested that nature to the men uh, that God had given him. And the disciples saw it for three years, day in and day out. They saw a manifestation of the character of God. They saw the name of God in terms of the character and attributes of God being portrayed before their eyes. So that's the first thing, part of this work that he accomplished. The second is, the Son gave them the Father's word. 
verse 8, For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. He gave them the Father's word. Jesus gave the disciples the words, the doctrines, the truths, which the Father had given him to give to them. See, this was a work. This was part of the work that God assigned to him when he brought, sent him to earth. He said, I want you to give him, give him my word. That includes the teachings, the truths, the doctrines um, that God wanted taught to these disciples. The son said only what the father gave him to say. Never just decided to say something else on his own. He didn't do that. He gave him exactly the words that the father told him to give to them. Let's turn back to chapter 12. Another way of saying is, this is, I have come as light into the world. Truth, reality of God being presented. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. But I want you to skip on down. Well, let's just read read this section. Uh, uh, okay, we're in John 12 and verse uh, 46. If anyone hears my saying and does not keep them, my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him, the word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. Now, why is that? Well, listen to this. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So... Part of the work that he accomplished was giving the word of the Father to these disciples. Now here, I think, is an amazing thing. Eleven men had been given to him. There's twelve, but one of them, he says, was a son of perdition. So eleven men had been given to Christ. He taught those eleven men for three years, everything that the Father gave him to teach to them. Didn't leave anything out, didn't add anything. He gave those 11 men the Word of God. And so he comes at this point, he says, I finished that work. And he says, they have come to know Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. Now, when you read this section, if you're like me, 
it kind of raises some questions here. Uh, you wonder how he could say these things about these 11 men. Because up to this time, they had kind of had a shaky beginning, you might say. Jesus says they received and understood and believed. See that in verse 8. For the words which, I've, uh, which you have given me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Now, that, the people he's talking about are those 11 vacillating, uh, often uh, unbelieving, often selfish disciples who many times didn't even understand what Jesus was saying. How are we to understand this? Well, I, I think it is along these lines. For all their faults, they knew his words were from God. They knew that God had sent him. And they had purposed to keep his word. What they did was prove by experience the truth of John seven seventeen. If anyone is willing to do his will, that is the Father's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. See, they were willing to do his will, and consequently they knew what Jesus was telling them was from God. They knew he was from God, they know this word was from God, and they determined to follow it. Now, they didn't, do, didn't always do a good, uh, weren't a good example of that, but nevertheless, they knew it was right, they determined to follow it. When others turned back, they knew there wasn't anywhere else to go for the words of eternal life. Why don't we look at that, John 6, 60. And John, Jesus had some pretty difficult things to say, things that were hard to understand. And they didn't always understand them, but they still were going to follow. That's what you and I have to do, too. But I'm just saying, these 11, initial 11 disciples uh, did not turn away when they didn't understand or when there were difficult things that were said. You remember Jesus was teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. A bunch of the disciples didn't understand it, and they just turned away. Um, John 6 and verse 60. Therefore many of the disciples, when they heard this, said, uh, said this, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And then if you skip down to verse 66, as a result... As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away also? You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, there it is right there. 
even when they didn't understand things, they understood this. This is the only one that's got the word of eternal life. And we've believed it. And uh, we've come to know that you're the Holy One of God. What made them believe that? What made them believe this man? He was a man standing there saying these things. The words of Jesus searched their hearts. That's what made them believe. They'd never heard anybody talk like this. Now, there's others that said that, but the disciples said more than that. They were saying, this word has gotten down into us. It's searched our hearts. It's opened our eyes. It's dispelled our doubts. It's set our hearts aflame. They knew this, that when they took his word seriously, things changed. Things began to happen. Things happened to them that only God could do. And gradually, through the course of three or three and a half years, they listened to those compelling God-given words. And as they did, there was born in their hearts a faith that here was one who came from God and spoke the word of God. Now, again, at this point, that right when Jesus was praying this prayer, I doubt if they understood that their Messiah, they knew he was the Messiah, but they didn't understand that very well. They didn't understand about the stuff about dying and rising again. They may not have grasped how he would fulfill all those Old Testament types and shadows. That was still to come, all the, getting that solidified in their mind. But they had come to a deep conviction that Jesus was God's messenger, that he had been sent by God, and that all he taught was God's truth. So you have these disciples, these eleven, and this is who he's praying for here at this point. He's not praying for the world, he says. I'm praying for those that you've given me out of the world. And he's speaking specifically of these 11 apostles. Now, I want to close with a quote from J.C. Ryle. Thinking of these 11 uh, disciples. Our Lord here declares three remarkable things about his disciples. They had willingly received and embraced the truths he brought to them from the Father. They had known and acknowledged that their master had come from God the Father. They believed and were persuaded that the Father sent him to be their Messiah. Those are the three things. And all this had taken place when the vast majority of their countrymen neither acknowledged nor believed anything of the kind. They were going totally against the grain by listening, believing uh, in this one that God had sent. We should carefully note the high character given to the disciples by our Lord. It seems wonderful at first sight when we remember their many defects in faith and knowledge, that our Lord should commend them for knowing and believing. 
No doubt the words are used in a comparative sense, comparing them with the world who had turned the other way. Yet when we think of the immensely, immensely difficult position the disciples of the disciples and the opposition they had to meet from the learned scribes and the Pharisees, and remember above all that Christ had not yet risen from the dead, we shall see that it was no light matter for them to believe at all. It is, after all, a very comfortable reflection, I like the way he puts this, a very comfortable reflection that our Lord does not despise weak grace and that he honors reality and sincerity of faith, although it may be very small. Christ tells all the good he can of his disciples and covers their failings. How poorly had they received Christ's words. How weak and staggering was their faith. How oft had Christ reproved them sharply for their unbelief and other faults. Yet not a word of all this in Christ representing them to his Father. When he's praying for his disciples, he doesn't bring any of that up. This is the constant, constant, gracious way of our high priest. This is the way God deals with us as he brings us before the Father. Man, alas, does the very con- contrary of all this. He talks of his neighbor's faults, but not of his graces. But not our high priest, you see. That's why he calls it a very comfortable reflection. The Lord does not despise weak grace. He says, they received and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. I think we'll close there this evening. But again, you see, it's about relationships. It's about relationships. And I would say this, even in this prayer, I think there's a lesson for our praying for others. Others that we might see as kind of weak in grace. <laughs> we need to have this kind of attitude, which was in our, on our high priest. Well, we'll go on from there, starting at verse 9, Lord willing, next time. Anyone have a song we could close with?